reading uh, Matthew 5, 1 through 12. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a blue and white copy under a seat uh, in front of you or around you. Feel free to use that as your own. Let's actually bring you over here so we can see you. Seeing the crowds, he went upon a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those when others revile you and are persecuted you and under all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. So cool to see just even getting a a little bit of a vision, a little bit of a glimpse for um, long-term intergenerational um, rootedness and and ministry uh, here in our city. So so thankful for seeing that with the Shields, this service with the Lamberts, uh, last service. Um, Awesome to see what God is continuing to do. Uh, through, through families, through singles, through folks of, of all different uh, backgrounds and all different life stages here at SOMA. So uh, my name is Josh, one of the pastors. Glad that you guys are here. Um, we are continuing uh, our series today in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, James or, uh, Cooper and Lily Claire read to us uh, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. It's commonly called the Beatitudes, these eight statements of blessing where Jesus says, blessed, blessed, blessed. And, and what he's doing here in these eight statements is he's introducing uh, the Sermon on the Mount. He is introducing uh, what the kingdom of God looks like. And he is saying, this is what it looks like when you live in a right relationship to God. When you live in a right relationship to other people, when you live in a right relationship to the world around you, he says, this is the life that you were created for. This is the fully human life. This is the good life. And so we come today to Matthew 5, 8, and it's one of the best known Beatitudes. Jesus says, Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, happy, flourishing are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This idea of of seeing God is a thread that you can trace all throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. As a matter of fact, if you look at other world religions, you can even see other world religions picking up on this thread. Because as human beings, we have an innate hunger to see God. Even if we wouldn't articulate it that way, that's what we've been created for. The Bible tells us that, that, that God created us as human beings in His image. In other words, He created us to know Him and to be known by Him. He created us to see Him and to reflect who He is. Now you might initially hear this, hear this phrase, pure in heart, seeing God, and that just seems so weird. It seems so otherworldly. And you ask yourself, who cares? How is this relevant to the world I live in? I live in a world with so many problems. We have so many issues. We have so much brokenness that needs to be fixed. We have so much progress that needs to be made, both in the world out there and in my own life. And maybe this is something that sages and philosophers and monks and weird ultra-religious people care about, but I live in the real world. 
And I want to submit to you that that is precisely why this matters. This promise, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, has the utmost relevance for real people living real lives in the real world. And here's why. Because all of the problems of humanity, if you trace them, violence, oppression, war, sexism, racism, all of our social and political problems, all the problems in our interpersonal relationships, all the problems with unjust systems in society, they are all ultimately rooted in the heart. It doesn't mean that good legislation and good policy are unimportant. They most certainly are. And Christians should be champions for justice in these areas. But we also see that it just doesn't go deep enough. I mean, if 2017 has taught us one thing, it's that we haven't made nearly as much progress as we thought that we had. Still so much racism, so much sexism, so much hatred. And and laws are important to protect against those things, but, but if you just pay attention, hatred just keeps finding more and more ways of rearing its ugly head, doesn't it? Why is that? It's because our hearts remain unchanged. And that's where Jesus steps in here and He says, I come to change that at the core of what it means to be human. I am bringing a revolution. I am bringing a revolution of the heart that will have reverberating effects to the entire world. Jesus came to restore our humanity at the core of our beings. He came to reorient our hearts to God and toward our neighbor. That's what it means to be pure in heart. He says, I have come to align your heart with God's heart. And when that happens, it changes everything. So I want to look at this verse today. Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we're just going to ask three very simple questions today. One, what does it mean to be pure in heart? Two, what does it mean to see God? And three, how do you get that? What does it mean to be pure in heart? What does it mean to see God? And how do you get that? First, what, what does it mean to be pure in heart? Remember, when when Jesus speaks these words here, He's not just giving uh, a philosophy lecture. He's not just writing a a treatise on a religious treatise in an ivory tower somewhere. He's speaking to real people living real life in a real historical situation. He's speaking specifically uh, to first century Jewish people, and He's speaking especially to their religious leaders. They, they, They had learned a particular brand of religion from their religious leaders, and that's where He confronts them. If you read the Gospels, you read the the earliest biographies of Jesus, you find that he is always confronting this one particular group of people. It's a group of religious leaders known as the Pharisees. Pharisees were the religious elite of the day. They were renowned for their piety. They were the good guys. These are the guys who fasted twice a week. They prayed all the time. They had memorized the entire book of Psalms. They had memorized the first five books of the Bible. They taught the Scriptures. They gave their money to the poor. If you were a religious Jew in Jesus' day, you wanted your son to grow up to be a Pharisee. And you wanted your daughter to grow up to marry a Pharisee. And yet Jesus, time and time again, He confronts this group of religious leaders that everybody else thinks is the best thing in the world. He calls them hypocrites. He says, you look good on the outside, but your hearts are full of sin and wickedness and injustice and oppression on the inside. That's where Jesus is aiming this bullet right here. He's saying, I don't just want your external religiosity. 
I don't just want your church attendance or your prayers or your money. I do want that. I want more than that. I want your heart. That's a really important thing for those of us to hear who are here on Sunday morning. Because many of us look like pretty good people by any external measure. Work hard. You're faithful to your spouse. You're a loving parent to your children. You give to the church. You give to the poor. And those are all good things. But Jesus wants more than that. He wants our hearts. Best definition I've ever heard of pure in heart comes from uh, Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard was uh, a Danish philosopher and theologian. And he says this. He says, purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will or to desire one thing. It means I have one all-consuming desire. And so let me ask you, what is that one thing for you? What is the one thing that you say, I've got to have that or life isn't worth living? What's the non-negotiable in your life? Because whatever the non-negotiable is, that's your God. And Jesus says the way to blessedness, the way to happiness, the way to real life is to make God the one non-negotiable in your life. Because all of those other non-negotiables, all of those other things that we so often center our lives on will ultimately disappoint us. For some of us, the non-negotiable is our career. For some of us, the non-negotiable is a relationship or our family. For some of us, the non-negotiable is our physical health. And those are all good things. None of those things are bad in and of themselves. But if you center your life on those things, if they become the non-negotiable, they will, they will ultimately disappoint you. You can have a great career, but your career will disappoint you. You can have an amazing family, but your family will disappoint you. You can be doing CrossFit twice a week and eat nothing but kale and protein shakes, but your health is eventually going to disappoint you. See, of all of these things that we sometimes build our lives around, that we center ourselves on, there is only one thing that will bring us true, full, enduring happiness. Jesus says, that's what I want for you. I want to restore your humanity. I want to reorient your heart to me. I want to reorient your heart to my Father because I am the only thing that will fully and ultimately make you happy. Happy are those who are pure in heart. Happy are those whose hearts are centered on God. Happy are those who have made God the one non-negotiable in their life. Being pure in heart means God is the one thing I absolutely must it means you can agree with what David says in Psalm 27.4. One thing, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in His temple. By the way, David, when he writes this, is a man who's on the run for his life. He's fighting wars. He's a king. He's got a lot of other stuff going on in his life that he could have sought. And he said, this is the one thing I need. I need to see God. It means that's our all-consuming passion. It means the words of the Apostle Paul ring true to you. Philippians 3, whatever gain I had, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, which is a, a very toned down translation of the original Greek. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Because I want one thing. I want to see Christ. I want to know God. 
It means that you can honestly sing the words of the great old spiritual, give me Jesus, give me Jesus. You can have all the world, but give me Jesus. Friends, God doesn't just want your head. He doesn't just want you to believe the right things and say the right words and adhere to the right statements of faith. And He doesn't just want your hands. He doesn't just want you to do the right things and perform the right external rituals. He wants your heart. Because God is not a syllogism to be reasoned about. And God is not an ethical principle to be adhered to. God is a person to be loved. He wants you to want Him more than anything. That's what it means to be pure in heart. How does Jesus sum it up? Teacher, what's the great commandment? What's the law? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Love God with everything you have and everything you are. Now what does that mean? Does that mean we move away to a monastery and you've got to wear a toga and you've got to get a funny haircut and you've got to pray all day? No, what it means is that you're seeking God in everything you do. Everything you do, you're loving God. In your job, in your nine to five, in your family, in your relationships, in your hobbies, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, desiring and loving God with everything. It means we have an undivided heart. That God is our great pursuit. And look at this beautiful promise here. Blessed are the pure in heart, Matthew 5, 8, because they shall see God. I mean, Jesus says, you learn, you learn to desire the one thing that's going to make you happy. You learn to really want that one thing that's going to make, that's going to make everything full of joy. You learn to want God with all your heart. God will give Himself to you. God will show Himself to you. So what does that mean? Pure in heart, what does it mean to see God? The Bible talks a lot about seeing God, but it never really defines it. It never really says, okay, this is exactly what we're talking about when we talk about seeing God. And here, here's my best attempt to kind of boil it down. I think that seeing God, if you look across the Scriptures, mean this, means that you experience His goodness and His beauty, and you find the joy you were created for in Him. You experience His goodness and His beauty. And you find the joy you were created for in Him. Psalm 1611, in your presence. The Hebrew there is literally before your face. Before your face, God, is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. David says to live in the presence of God. To live literally before the face of God. To see His beauty. To live in His presence. That is fullness of joy. Now, there's a sense in which that's something that happens to us in the future. This is, this is the great hope that Christians look forward to. Revelation 22, the Apostle John says, Jesus is going to return. He's going to set all things right. He's going to make all things new. He has this vision. I'm going to pick it up in Revelation 22:3. He says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, in the new heavens and new earth, and His servants will worship Him. And then verse 4, he says this, they will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. They will reign forever and ever. That's what we celebrate here. That's what we celebrate with these candles. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. That the light has broken in. That we have already begun to experience the light. But one day, one day, we're going to experience the light of God's presence. Unmitigated. Unhindered. 
nothing in the way, unencumbered joy with the light of God's presence. That is a beautiful promise. No more death. No more curse. No more oppression. No more injustice. No more racism. No more poverty. No more disease. No more curse. Life, healing. And what is the thing that ultimately makes it so wonderful? That God is there. That we will see His face. So we look forward to that. That's what Advent is about. We're looking forward in anticipation to Christ's second coming. But there's also a sense in which it's already happened to us. If you are in Christ, there's a sense in which it's already happened in your heart that you can experience it now. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, we read it earlier. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says, you were blind to God. You, me, every, everyone in this room, we were blind to God. Our eyes were sealed shut against the God who is there. But the God who spoke the universe into existence, the God who said, let there be light, and there was light, that God has spoken, has spoken into our hearts. He has opened our eyes to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we can do what the psalmist says, Psalm 34, 8. We can come and we can taste and see that the Lord is good. Have you experienced that? Have you ever experienced that? Will you taste and see that the Lord is good? That's what Christianity is. That's the the life Jesus is calling us and welcoming us into. Not just knowing the right things, not just doing the right things, tasting and seeing that He is good. Now I realize that sounds really ethereal. It sounds strange. It sounds mystical. By the way, it is, in a sense, mystical. Seeing God is not so much something to be explained as it is something to be experienced. Most of you in this room, I fully realize, uh, are, are too young to remember this. Uh, but, but back in the day, not that long ago, uh, if you were single, you were sometimes subjected to something called a blind date. Um, Tinder had not been invented yet. Uh, Facebook wasn't even really a thing, right? So, I mean, even if you were being set up with someone, you couldn't go online and stalk them like you can do today. You were completely at the mercy of your friends. Let me tell you, there is nothing like a blind date to show you who your real friends are. So so they set you up. They set you up on this date with someone, and they they tell you all about them. I mean, they're, they're reading their specs off to you. And, of course, they always make them sound to me, man, she's got an IQ of 160. Um, she's working on a cure for cancer. She plays the violin. She rescues puppies in her, in her spare time. And she's gorgeous. She's beautiful, right? It's fine, right? Okay, you take it with a grain of salt. But you learn, if you've ever been on a blind date, you learn really quickly not to settle for hearing about someone secondhand. You need to see them. You need to meet them. You need to experience them face-to-face. And you typically know within the first 15 minutes whether there's going to be a second date. Because someone could sound great on paper. But you've got to meet them in person to know if this is someone that you can fall in love with, to know if this is someone that, that you can give your heart to. And so I remember I had been on a few blind dates. Uh, none of them turned into second dates. Uh, and then there's this couple from church, and they just call me up one day and say, hey, we're going to go grab dinner at this new restaurant. You want to join us? Yeah. Little did I know, behind the scenes, they were scheming because the wife had invited her, her sister to join us. And I walk into this restaurant, and I see her face, and I'm hooked. And a year and a half later, I marry her. I know, right? (laughs) So blind dates can work. They can work. They 
I think we're the exception to the rule. Uh, neither of us knew what was happening, so uh, maybe that helped us out. Here's the thing. Here's the point of all of that. You, you can't settle for secondhand information about someone. You can't just hear about them. I and mean, this is someone that you're going to give your heart to. You need to meet them. You need to experience them face to face. That's what God wants for us. God says, I don't just want you to hear about me. I don't want you to just have a set of data about me. He wants us to know Him. He wants us to experience Him. He wants us to see Him face to face. As Jonathan Edwards says when he's talking about this, he says there is a world of difference between having a theoretical idea of the sweetness of honey and actually tasting honey. There is a world of difference between seeing a beautiful sunset and and trying to explain a beautiful sunset. I can tell you about the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls, but it is not the same thing as standing on the edge and feeling dwarfed by the immensity of it. And I can attempt to explain to you what it means to see God with the eyes of your heart, but that will always fall short because it's something that you've got to experience for yourself. And so if that's true, if it's true that's something we need to experience, then how do we get that? How, how does that happen? This is where I want to camp for the rest of our time. How do you cultivate a pure and undivided heart? How do you, how do you learn to develop spiritual eyesight so that you can see God? There's no simple linear process. Okay, So first, let me just say this up front. This is ultimately a work of God's grace. In Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel, uh, God through Ezekiel says, I'm going to take away your heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. 2 Corinthians 4 that we just saw, God's the one who opens our eyes. So we realize this is ultimately something God creates. And if you're experiencing that, if you have this desire for God, then thank Him for that. That's not something you created in yourself. God did that. God opened your eyes. God gave you that heart. But also continue to cultivate it. The Scriptures tell us God is ultimately the one who does that. But that doesn't just mean we sit back and we say, okay, well, if God's going to do this, God's going to do this. No, it means that He also gives us certain things to cultivate a pure heart. Certain things to do to cultivate spiritual eyesight. And my hope for all of us is that we'll take some of these things that the Scriptures teach us and we'll begin to practice them in our lives, not because we just need another thing to do, not because we need to keep another religious ritual, but I'm going to ask God that He would open our eyes, that He would overwhelm us with His beauty, that He would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and taste buds to taste and see that He is good. So here's some of the ways that, that the Bible teaches us to cultivate this kind of a pure heart that sees God. First, and this is going to sound maybe a little counterintuitive, but if you want to cultivate a pure heart, the first thing that you have to do is to confess the fact that your heart is not pure. The first thing you have to do is confess the fact that your heart is not pure. I I look at this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And it sounds so beautiful. I want to see God. I want to experience His beauty. I want the joy of His presence. But if I'm honest, I don't always live that way. If I'm honest, there are moments in which I don't want God more than anything. Sometimes I want sin more than I want God. Sometimes I want the approval or the affirmation of other people more than I want God. See, none of us is completely pure in heart. And the first step to having a pure heart is to be honest about the fact that we have impure hearts. That's why Jesus starts this sermon the way that he does. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, very first words out of Jesus' mouth. Blessed are the poor 
in spirit. Blessed, happy are those, the ones who are on the road to the kingdom are those who recognize their utter spiritual bankruptcy before God. So we confess that our hearts are not pure. Listen, God doesn't want your pretending. God doesn't want your posturing. God doesn't want your religious games. God wants your heart. He wants you to come honestly before Him. He wants us to stop hiding from Him. Be honest about the fact of what's in your heart, even if it's ugly. And ask Him to change it into something beautiful. Ask Him to give you a pure heart. You're not going to hide it from God anyway. So ask Him for it. Psalm 51, verse 10, King David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. He has tried to cover it up by having her husband murdered. And he's gotten caught. And he stops running and he comes to God and he confesses his sin in 51.10. Psalm 51.10, he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. I mean, do you see what's happening there? He's not trying to pretend, okay, I am pure in heart. He's not trying to pretend I've got everything all together. He's not trying to hide it. He says, I failed. My heart is impure. I need you to cleanse me. I need you to make me pure. To have a pure heart starts with being honest about our sin. It means that we don't hide it. We, we don't excuse it. We don't try to justify it or paper over it or dress it up and, and try to make it look not quite as bad. We own it. And then we fall on His mercy and we receive His forgiveness and we cry out to Him to change our hearts. So that's the first step. It has to start uh, the road to a pure heart. The first step is recognize you don't have a pure heart. And, and confess that honestly to God. But but it doesn't stop there. God doesn't just want us to be people who confess our impure hearts. He actually wants to purify our hearts. He actually makes, wants to make our hearts like His heart. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, God loves you just the way you are, but He loves you too much to let you stay there. God loves you just the way you are, but He loves you too much to let you stay there. And so we confess our impure hearts, but then we ask God for His help. We ask Him to purify our hearts. Psalm 86.11. I, I pray this prayer literally every day. Psalm 86.11. Teach me Your way, O Lord, that I may walk in Your truth. Unite my heart to fear Your name. God, I want to want You more than anything. I want to love You and honor You with my whole heart. But my heart is divided. My heart is running in a million different directions. God, I don't want You with everything. I feel like my heart's being pulled apart. So God, unite my heart to fear Your name. Open my eyes to see the beauty of who You are. We sang, Be Thou my vision. Be Thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that Thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, Thy presence my light. God, I want You to be my vision. I want You to be the thing that I fixate on. I want to wake up thinking about You and I want to go to sleep dreaming about You. God, give me an undivided heart. Captivate my desires and my thoughts and my imaginations. And maybe you don't even know how to pray that. Maybe your heart feels so cold that I can't even pray that. That's why God's given us the Scriptures. That's why He's given us the Psalms. That's why He's given us these hymns. Because sometimes I can't even formulate that prayer and I need to pray what, what someone else has written down because I know that's what I need in the core of my being. God, give me an undivided heart. God, give me eyes to see your beauty. God, give me taste buds to taste and see that you are good. Confess that our hearts are impure. Ask for his help. Third, cut out the things that impair your vision. 
cut out the things that impair your vision. I would encourage you, continue reading. Read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Read it multiple times. Let it soak yourself in it. We're going to be going over it the next few months. But, but as you read this, you'll find Jesus warns us about things that will take our eyes off God. He warns us about things that blind us to the reality of God. I'm just going to hit these real briefly because we're going to be coming back to these things. But he warns us, he warns us Matthew 5.27, if you look there in your, in your copy of the Scriptures, he warns us about lust. He says, if your right eye caused you to sin, tear it out, throw it from you. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He says, I know you think it's just just a look, but you can become so blinded by sexual desire that you lose your desire for God. You you can so destroy your eyesight by by looking at lust or pornography or fixating on, on, on impure sexual desire that you lose all sense of true beauty. Warns us about lust, but Jesus isn't just backwards and repressed and Victorian and he's worried about lust. He's also worried about hypocrisy. Look, look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. He says you can spend, and this is a really, really uh, poignant warning for religious people, you can spend so much time worrying about what other people think of you that you stop caring what God thinks about you. We can do this as a religious person or as an irreligious person. We all wear these masks. From earliest childhood, we learn to wear these masks. We learn to present ourselves a certain way to the world. Jesus says, I don't want your masks. I don't want your made-up, airbrushed existence. I want your heart. Talks about appearances. Talks about lust. He talks about greed and money, Matthew 6. Uh, it talks about how, how we can so fixate on money. We can become so obsessed with money. By the way, money's not a bad thing. Money's a good thing. It's a gift of God. But we can become so focused on it. It can become so much the focal point that we lose sight of God. And when the chips are down, we find that our allegiance lies with money rather than God. So Jesus warns us about these things. Not because Jesus is just backwards and repressed, because he wants us to see God. And so he warns us about lust, and he warns us about hypocrisy, and he warns us about greed. And most of us, some of us maybe, are feeling pretty good here. Okay, got the lust thing down, got the hypocrisy thing down, got the greed thing down. And then Jesus warns us about self-righteousness. Matthew 7, verse 3. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your own eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So is your self-righteousness, your pursuit of trying to be a perfect person, your, your obsession with keeping all the rules, that can actually blind you to God. That can actually be something that pulls you away from God because then you start redefining God. You start bringing God down to your standards. You remake God in your image. You imagine that God affirms the things that you affirm and he condemns the things that you condemn. God just likes the people who are just like me. We can't see clearly because there's a log in our eyes and it's impairing our vision. So let me ask you, what is it for you? I would encourage you, do some inventory of your heart this week. It might be one of these things. It might be something else. What is it that's impairing your vision? What's preventing you from seeing? What's blinding you to the reality of God? Not just because you're trying to to get all your junk together, but because those things are going to steal your happiness. 
Those things are going to steal the blessed life that you were created for. They're going to divide your heart. They're going to keep you from seeing God. Right of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 12, 14, Pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now that is a really unpopular verse in 21st century American Christianity. This is something that we tend to miss because we act as if God can just kind of be an optional add-on to our life. I like this about God, so I'm going to bring this part of God over here. Listen, God doesn't want to be another thing in your life. He wants to be the thing. He wants to be the non-negotiable. Throughout the Bible, God compares His relationship with His people to the relationship between a husband and a wife. He says, I'm going to give myself completely to you. And I want you to give yourself completely to me. I don't want to be your side dude. I want to be your husband. If we're going to see God, if we're going to have a pure, undivided heart, if He's going to be the one non-negotiable, then that's going to change the way that we live, right? If something or someone is non-negotiable to you, you change the way that you live. You give up certain things to get the one thing that really matters. If your career, if if getting to a certain place in your company is the non-negotiable, then you will sacrifice. You'll do what it takes to get there. If your physical health, if if a certain standard of health is your non-negotiable, then you do certain things to get there. If your spouse is your non-negotiable, if you love your spouse and you're committed to them, then you guard the integrity of your relationship. It's the same thing with God. If God is the non-negotiable, then we will cut out certain things in order to get the one thing that will make us fully and finally happy. So that's how we cultivate this. Confess our impure hearts. Ask for God's help. Cut out the things that impair our vision. Fourthly and finally and ultimately, this sounds so simple, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. If you're like me, you start to look at your heart and you start to to, to measure it up against this standard of being pure in heart, and you realize, man, I, my heart, my heart is so impure, and it seems like I've got so far to go. And what we need to remember here is that Jesus is not just pointing us to God. He's not just telling us how to see God. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the God that we long to see. Jesus is the God who has shown himself to us. Jesus is the one who has come for blind people, for people with impure hearts. We blinded ourselves to God, every one of us. We turned our hearts away from Him. But God broke through. God made Himself visible. God stepped in. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That Jesus showed Himself to us. John 1.18 No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side He has made Him known. Jesus says, ultimately, if you want to see God, look at Me. Because I'm the God who has come for you. I've come for you who have an impure heart. I have come to open the eyes of the blind. I haven't just come to show you what God is like and to condemn you. I have come to bring you to God. I have come to suffer the punishment that your impure heart deserves. You and I deserve to be cut off from the presence of God, but Jesus has come to be cut off for us. The Bible tells us that from all of eternity, God the Father and God the Son enjoyed a perfect face-to-face relationship. The Father had always looked at the face of the Son and delighted in Him. The Son had looked at the face of the Father and delighted in Him. 
But one Friday afternoon, about 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth hung on a wooden cross outside Jerusalem. And the only man who had ever had a perfectly pure heart was nailed to a cross for your impure heart and for mine. And as he began to asphyxiate, as he choked on his own blood, he looked up to the heavens and he scanned the sky and he looked for the face of his Father. But God was nowhere to be found. For the first time in all of eternity, God the Father turned his face away, turned his back on his Son. Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did the Father forsake him? Why did he hide his face from the only pure-hearted man who had ever lived? He did it because he was bearing the punishment for your impure heart and for my impure heart. The Apostle Peter says, Christ suffered once for sins. The righteous literally in the place of the unrighteous. Why? So that he might bring us to God. He has done what is necessary to bring us to God. It's not that I, that, I, that I pull myself up and that I do everything perfect and I clean myself up. No, Jesus has done. Jesus has suffered in our place to bring us to God. He was cut off from the Father so that you could see God. So look to Jesus. Friends, more than anything else, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus in community with one another this week. Look to Jesus as you're going through your life. Look to Jesus in His Word. In the Scriptures, this is where He reveals Himself to us and He promises to change us. He promises to bring our hearts in line with Him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we'll have it on the screen and back. But it, it simply says that as we look at Jesus in the Scriptures, the Spirit of God begins to make our hearts look like Jesus' heart. We look into His Word. We see the face of Jesus. He purifies our hearts. He remakes us from the inside out. He continually heals our eyes so that we can see God. He gives us taste buds to taste and see that He is good. Now that is, a, that is not a natural thing sometimes as we go throughout this world. We have to fight for purity of heart. We have to fight to keep our eyes on Jesus. There are so many things that distract us. There are so many things that entice us away from God. It is a lifelong fight, but friends, it is not a losing fight. If you are here and if you are in Jesus, He promises that He will complete the work that He began in you. And you might be looking at your own heart and you might say, there's so much there that's still so messed up. There is still so much impurity there. And I'll just encourage you, don't give up because He hasn't given up on you. And He promises that it'll be worth it. He promises one day we will see God. One day we will see Him face to face. One day He will fully purify our hearts and He will fully heal our eyes to see Him as He is. So as you go out this week and as you seek to live this out, let me just we're going to go to communion in a minute. But let me just send you out with these words of the Apostle John. And, and let these words encourage you. Because this is your destiny. Your destiny, if you are in Christ, is to have your heart fully purified, to be completely like Him and to see Him face to face. Listen to what he says, 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Keep that hope in front of you. That's what God is doing in you. 
That's what God wants. He wants to give you a perfectly pure, undivided heart that can find fullness of joy in Him. And one day we'll see Him face to face. And so let's live with changed lives in light of that reality now. We're going to go to communion. And communion, the Lord's Supper, uh, is, is, a, is a visible reminder of this fact. It's a reminder of the fact that one day we're going to see God face to face. It's a reminder that God became visible, that He became physical, that He became flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, that He lived among us, that He served us, that He laid down His life for us, that His body was broken for us and His blood was shed for us. It's a reminder of what He did in the past, but it's also a reminder that He's coming again. Jesus promises one day I'm going to come back and we're going to feast and we're going to party and we're going to eat and drink and you will see my face and you will see the face of God. And so in the meantime, we take this simple bread and we take this simple cup and, and we eat it and we drink it, not just in remembrance of what he's done in the past, but in anticipation of his return. Looking forward to that day when Jesus returns and he sets all things right and he makes all things new. And He is our God and we are His people and we live in the light of His presence forever. And so if you're a Christian, if that's your hope, we, we invite you to, to come and to eat and drink today. We're going to have stations at the front. We're going to have stations out in the gallery in the back. You simply come down the aisle, tear off a piece of the bread, uh, dip it in the cup, and, and then return to our seats. If you're not a Christian, and maybe you've heard these things today, and you say, what in the world is this guy talking about? You've, you've never experienced this. I would love to talk with you more about that. See, what does, it, what does it mean to encounter Jesus? What does it mean to experience this love and this joy and this life that, that he's created us for? And so uh, we invite you simply to remain in your seats. Don't do a, some perfunctory religious duty, but just simply to remain in your seats while others come to take uh, the bread and the cup. And I'd love to speak with you after the service if you have questions about what it means to, to truly encounter Jesus. So let's pray and uh, let's take the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, Thank you that you haven't left us to ourselves. Thank you that you haven't left us in our impure hearts. God, thank you that even though we are a people who have turned our back on you time and time and time again, that we are people who have run away from you, that we are people whose hearts are so often divided, thank you that you are so patient with us. You are so merciful and compassionate. Thank you that our righteousness before you, that our acceptance before you doesn't depend on us being perfect people, but depends on a perfect Savior who's given his perfect blood for us and who has risen again to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. Father, I pray that you would continue to open our eyes. I pray that you would continue to give us hearts completely devoted to you, hearts that hunger for you and thirst for you, hearts that are satisfied in you. Give us eyes to see you and hearts to love you. Um, Lord, I, I, I pray that you would fortify us with hope of your coming return. We look forward to the day when we see Christ face to face. So thank you for this reminder. Thank you for the body of Jesus broken for us and his blood shed for us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.